Welcome to Socialist Revolution Podcast. This week, we are going to present a Marxist position on the 2020 election. That America will never be a socialist country. country. Attitudes are changing towards socialism. We believe the only solution is the establishment of a workers' government on a socialist program. Thanks for tuning in. My name is Laura. I'm an editor at Socialist Revolution magazine. And this week, we are going to replay the audio from our latest live stream video, which was actually a panel discussion with participants who are organizers across the country, looking at the question of lesser evilism and the approach that revolutionary socialists should take with regards to the upcoming presidential election. So give it a listen, um, but I also recommend that you actually watch the video, uh, which was a very engaging discussion with participation from the audience, uh, Q&A, and you can find the video on our YouTube and Facebook channels by searching for Socialist Revolution. Hope you enjoy. All right, and welcome everyone to a special live stream uh, for the Socialist Revolution live stream. Uh, today, it's a little bit different because we not only have a roundtable discussion with three other panelists, including myself, uh, we are also going to be taking questions and answering them from both our Facebook live stream and our YouTube live stream as well. So if you are watching, please feel free to interact and talk to us about this, this question of uh, socialism and lesser evilism. The context of these elections is actually entirely unprecedented in many ways. For one, there's a global pandemic uh, with COVID-19. Millions of people across the world, uh, not only their health, but it's having a devastating effect because of private property and the limits of private property on uh, how people live as well as the economy. There's also been unprecedented protests that have been uh, unprecedented both in a relative sense and an absolute sense the United States with, after the murder of George Floyd. 10% of the U.S. population participated in these protests, and they're already starting to draw conclusions now about not only about race, but about capitalism and the state. So this is an entirely unprecedented move, uh, and it's completely dwarfed the uh, protests of 1968 for civil rights, for instance, and are, are of an entirely different scale today. Also different today is the entire political context. In fact, since 2016, not only Bernie Sanders, but even Donald Trump uh, have been talking about the working class, which is sharply different uh, since the McCarthyist era in the United States, where everybody talks about only the middle class. That is definitely different today. And we have the, the uh, working class on uh, the agenda in terms of a, a recognition of, as a class in itself. Uh, we've also seen the growth of the DSA, which is now 75,000 people strong. This question of socialism, uh, you know, what, what that means and what socialism means is something that's definitely being debated and contested. But nonetheless, there is a reference point for socialism across uh, the country now, which is growing and is, is at least 75,000 people now. Uh, but of course, this, we also have to talk about the fact that despite the fact that several DSA candidates are running for office, 
they're running largely under the banner of the, the ballot of the Democratic Party with one wing trying to realign the Democratic Party and another purporting to put forward a dirty break from the Democratic Party and, and acting as if the Democratic ballot itself is agnostic. And this instability isn't confined just to the United States. It is definitely international. It is definitely spreading across the world. Whether we look at Haiti or Bolivia, there's a, an unprecedented sort of uh, impact of this crisis across the world, even in the United States, of course, uh, with just two choices, you know, essentially a referendum on the presidency, a yes-no referendum, with just two choices, or, or so we're told, uh, for president. But the New York Times yesterday published a report that said 36% of them would still have preferred Bernie over Biden. That's just the Democrats, not even counting the, the large number of people in this country that don't vote or are registered as independents. So with all of this context, what, I, what we will also be talking about uh, is what it looks like to put forward a class independent position. And we'll start by introducing uh, today's panel for this roundtable discussion. And we have Tom Trottier, one of the the editors of Socialist Revolution. Thanks, Carver. Great to be here. And we're also joined by Nick. He is the vice chair of Phoenix DSA and also a writer for Socialist Revolution. I appreciate the invitation today. And of course, Erica joining us from Minneapolis, another writer for Socialist Revolution. Thank you. Glad to be here. Excellent. So, Karmas, we'll start out by posing this question to Tom, but of course, you know, Erica, Nick, feel free to chime in. And, and the audience that's watching, if you have questions, please do write them in. We will receive the questions and we'll do our best to answer them as well. But it looks right now, it looks likely, although not certain, that Joe Biden is actually going to win uh, this election. Many left organizations, including the dominant groupings within the DSA, are calling for a vote for Biden, either tactically uh, or actually endorsing uh, Joe Biden himself. Is a Joe Biden presidency going to create better conditions for workers and the oppressed? Can Joe Biden be pushed left? And I'll pose that question to Tom first. Um, I would say no. Um, the premise of which these groups on the left uh, base themselves, this idea of supporting you know, the lesser evil, what they forget to understand is that most of the problems that are, are attacking the, the working class and are attacking the masses are systemic problems. They're not problems of policy. Of course, we're against Donald Trump. Of course, we're against Donald Trump's policies. But that's not the major problem in the country. The major problem is it's a crisis of cap capitalism. It's a systemic crisis. You know, there, there are some people who say that what we're seeing today is, a, is a, a crisis of neoliberalism. But it's more than that. It's not just a crisis of neoliberalism. It's a crisis of Keynesianism. It's even a crisis of reformism. Ultimately, capitalism is in a decline and it's, and it's uh, driving the standard of living down and increasing instability for people, economic instability, social instability, and that's reflected in political instability. So what do you mean by neoliberalism? Because I think that is definitely a phrase that's uh, thrown around quite a lot saying we have to combat neoliberalism. Why, why not use that term? Well, I'm not saying you can't use the term. What I'm saying is that it's a crisis that's beyond neoliberalism. It's a systemic crisis. Because, for example, the, the, why, how did, how did uh, Donald Trump get into office? It, it's based on the eight years that the Obama-Biden administration was in power and what it didn't do to help the working class, right? Now, now just, I, I, I just want to give you just a quick uh, figures. You know, if you, if you actually look 
at the 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 election um, uh, in in two thousand eight, right when when Obama went, ran and he was like uh, the, his slogan was uh, change you can you can believe it and they had an enormous amount of people had illusions that he was going to make things better, right? So they went out and they voted for Obama and they voted for the Democrats and they gave them a chance. Quickly, the Democrats disappointed people, right? And you saw that because in the midterms, you saw the rise of the Tea Party and and uh, and a real decline in Democratic Party votes. And just to show you, even though there was more people alive in the United States in 2016 than in 2008, um, the Democrats got something like 3.5 million less votes in 2016 than they in, than they did in 2008. Explain that to me. Why was there such a drop off? Why, why, why did that? Why did they create the, the, the conditions for someone like Trump to come in? The, the fact is, is their policies were not able to rectify what is, in fact, a systemic crisis. Yeah, so that's I systemic. Think, um, if, if that's all right, I. Yeah, absolutely. I was going to ask this. Yeah, um, I think it was a great. Um, uh, what, what Tom said to tie in is that this is a systemic crisis and. Uh, Minneapolis and Minnesota are great examples of what happens when you vote for the lesser evil for decades and decades. Uh, this absolutely is a systemic crisis. And we saw millions of people take to the streets recognizing that fact, uh, because George Floyd was not the the first, far from the first black man killed by a police officer, but rather the, the 49th just in the past. Uh, this is in a completely blue state, a completely blue uh, city council and and mayor for for decades, um, and this is the the state that has uh, elected Ilhan Omar as a representative to to Congress as well, and and conditions have not improved. You know, the COVID crisis has hit African Americans particularly hard uh, in terms of of death rates and and um, and the George Floyd protests organically connected the issue. Of, of race and police brutality, also to the question of housing, to the question of healthcare. Uh, and basically this was a movement that had been building up for, for quite a while and, and only exploded uh, now with the sort of straw that broke the camel's back. So we do have our first question from the audience, but before we take that up, I actually wanted to ask Nick a related question. You mentioned Ilhan Omar. Uh, Ilhan Omar is um, known to be more of a, of a leftist or, or is understood to be more of a leftist at the very least. Uh, she's also a member of the Democratic Socialists of America, Nick, uh, much like yourself. Uh, so if you could tell us a, a, a little bit about whether the DSA has any ability to like, you know, connect their, a, any sort of program or any, any platform or, or policy to Ilan Omar and what it means that Ilan Omar is running as a Democrat now, or has been, sorry. Yeah, no, that's a great question. I mean, uh, uh, of course, um, Ilan Omar is often uh, recognized as part of the squad, uh, along with Rashida Tlaib and um, uh, and Alexandra Ocasio Cortez. But the um, uh, with this question, when it comes to the uh, Democratic Party ballot line, right? Um, it's difficult to really uh, tear um, the exact policies of the individual from the party itself. We can look at something like, for instance, the um, Bipartisan Budget Act of 2019 from last year, right? This was a major uh, budget expansion that ended up giving uh, millions of dollars, in fact, uh, a total of $49 billion to military spending. 
Um, there were major increases to what the Pentagon received for this. Um, Ilhan Omar herself spoke against it, um, to her credit. However, um, she is directly tied in with the Democratic Party. Um, we have the other members of the squad also who had voted in favor of this. There's the ability for DSA um, to take a candidate like this and to really steer the policy in reflection with what the membership itself wants is quite limited, in fact, right? Um, there is no sort of uh, uh, connection, uh, organic connection to the DSA such that um, if the membership in Minneapolis, for instance, or you know the membership in the Bronx chapter of DSA uh, were in favor of one policy or the other, uh, there is no compulsion for any of these particular representatives to uphold those views, right? Um, only so as much we'll as any this, other. We'll come back to this question about accountability for DSA members shortly, because it, it does connect with um, a thesis that's been put forward in, in Jacobin magazine famously, uh, called the blueprint for a new party. There's variants of it known as the dirty break uh, strategy as well, in which it's argued that uh, DSA can run members under the democratic ballot, and they would they would somehow be held accountable to the DSA. So uh, you're, what you're pointing out, and actually to be precise, they're not saying the DSA, but, but to a party of a new type. Uh, I don't think there's a pretension that DSA is going to be that party uh, uh, at least as far as the article is concerned. We'll come back to that question uh, in just a moment. I did want to take up the first question that's coming from the audience. And, and uh, there's there's a the viewer that's asking, um, you know, is tr Trump's prediction is to crush the opposition, to set up his dictatorship. How does that factor into our calculations? And uh, the same viewer is now saying that the Democratic, this is not Democratic Party fear-mongering. This is legitimately what Trump uh, wants to do. So I'll, I'll take up answering that to a little uh, degree and then on any panelists that wants to jump back in on this. You know, we we got to put aside uh, the idea of whatever Trump conceives himself to be. He might think of himself as a fascist. He might not. But even if he does, uh, the, the real uh, sort of mass movement that is fascism is actually not on the horizon in this country. It's sim there's simply no mass movement for fascism. And, and part of the reason for that is the, the capitalist class has uh, has had its fingers burnt from the last time that they supported fascists, and they're only going—they're only going to do so. They're only going to support fascism as a last-ditch resort to save uh, capitalism itself. Aside from the capitalist support, the sort of lumpen proletarian support, etc., uh, the 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 support of uh, um, people like the Proud Boys. This is not a mass phenomenon, although it has to be said. Even if this not a, if it is not a mass phenomenon, it is still a very dangerous one because, as, as anyone can see, the Proud Boys, the Boogaloo Boys, these are definitely a dangerous layer that this that the working class should take seriously. Uh, but to, to say that a vote for Trump is ultimately going to lead for him to to go into a fascist dictatorship, if we if we backtrack a little bit, this is exactly what we were told about uh, George Bush's second term. We were we were told to vote for the lesser evil, and guess what happened? We were told to vote for. Uh, for Obama, uh, when the when it was being put forward that uh, John McCain was going to usher in fascism and and let you know see what happened. Uh, e each time this happens, we just keep moving further and further uh, to the right, and and the Democratic Party is not a left wing party at, at all. But again, now this is a a topic that I invite any uh, panelist that wants to speak on this to please go ahead and do so. And go ahead, yeah. Tom. I see you raised your hand yeah, first. Yeah, yeah. I I, I mean, you, you know what's interesting about this is that if Trump 
wanted wanted to and was able to crush the opposition he'd do it now before the election right uh what's stopping him uh you know if he's if he's willing to disregard all of those uh all those other guys that why why not do it right now the fact is is there's no basis for trump to have let's say some sort of military dictatorship um in actual fact when he used the military partially just to clear that block or two in Washington, D.C., after, you know, the day after he was running in to hide in his bunker. This is this is the the great autocrat. This is the great fascist. He's running in to hide in the bunker because he was afraid of uh, Black Lives Matter. And then he said, I'm going to show uh, how they cleared the streets for a couple blocks in, in Washington, D.C., and then he uh, and then he held the Bible upside down. Right. Um, but the fact is, is that right after that, a lot of people in the military, both high up generals, active generals, and even retired generals that wanted to disassociate themselves. By the way, we're not these generals are not necessarily lovers of democracy. What they were worried about is that when Trump was talking about using the military against the uh, American people, they're worried about the uh, military coming apart, right? I mean, the U.S. military could not hold down the Afghanistan, you know, the country of Afghanistan, couldn't hold down the people of Iran. They're going to hold down the the United States, the 330 million. It's, it's, it's absolutely not going to happen. If Trump really was an authoritarian person, going to crush people, simply voting against him, and that's, that's not going to stop, uh, stop him and, and putting Biden in there. Um, you know, I, I do have some other ideas, though, in terms of how uh, Trump could, uh, you, you know, uh, how he could get into to power. It's very possible and not win the majority vote. That's possible because that's what happened last time. But that has to do not with military. Uh, and we'll, we'll definitely we'll definitely come back to the undemocratic un nature of the U.S. Constitution. That's definitely something to discuss. But Erica, this is sort of linked to the very sort of you know historic protests that started in the city that you're from around the George Floyd protests. We also saw the National Guard, um, in many cases, putting down their shields across the country, uh, sort of ch chanting along with the protesters in many parts when slogans are being raised. Uh, what sort of uh, balance of forces uh, was seen uh, on, in the streets of Minneapolis in the height of the protests? Could you relate that a little bit to how strong the Democrats are, how strong uh, Trump actually is? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you saw this massive amounts of the street people who had uh, for the first time, maybe even being been awakened to uh, political life, and what you really saw was the the National Guard. Yeah, some some of them. There were definitely elements of of them siding with the protesters or being extremely ashamed to tell their families what what they were going to be deployed to do. Uh, but you also saw just complete exhaustion, inability to to cover all of the different protests protests that were going on uh, on the ground in Minneapolis at the height of the protests. You had the, the centers of capital in downtown being tr protected by the police force and the National Guard, uh, while it, when they're during the height of the, the property destruction um, during the protests, uh, you didn't have any uh, police escorts for, for fire trucks to, to go to those areas of the city. Uh, and just completely left them. And, and in that absence of, of uh, police force, you had the community itself step in. Um, you had organizations like like AIM and the uh, NAACP uh, start organizing patrols of the city to keep uh, the city safe, safe from instigators, from, from um, provocateurs, from 
uh, any right-wing elements or, or people that uh, were not clearly acting in the interests of the protests. And you saw that arise organically. And you also saw these protests kick out Democrats that did not uh, that did not agree to the demand of defunding or abolishing the police. Uh, so was- I think that relating that back to the viewers' question, uh, it's it's a, it, was, it was a very I think a good faith question about this is not fear mongering from the Democratic Party. It's actually what Trump wants to do. I think that is a good faith question. Although we have to draw the distinction between what Trump would might want to do and is actually able to do with all this context of how uh, weak uh, uh, Trump actually is, how weak the state is when the working class is moving. Uh, it's actually pretty clear that we shouldn't be trying to prop up one arm of of the capitalist political machine versus another. These are both two right wings of the same party, uh, and we shouldn't be trying to prop up one to save us from the other. But that actually leads to a pretty important question. Like, uh, Nick, you're from a a swing state, and um, I'm sure there's people in your state, and there might even be people in your DSA local that are arguing for... Uh, the idea that is in a swing state, we definitely don't want to, um, you know, support uh, Trump, so we have to vote for Biden. What would your answer be to to something along those lines if it was posed to you? Yeah, no, that's a, that's a great question. And the thing is, um, and I've seen, for instance, the New York Times has really been blowing up the importance of Arizona. That Arizona might decide the election, right? That this might be a year after, you know, what, 20, 24, 28 years of Arizona voting for the Republican Party in the presidential elections, that this might finally be the year that it can be tipped uh, for Joe Biden. Um, But um, on the one hand, we can look at the registration for the different um, parties in Arizona, and it's actually very evenly split, Um, a third, a third, and a third. So for Republicans, for Democrats, and then for so-called independents, now, the way that it's reported by um, by the uh, state office is somewhat unclear, but it seems like they've grouped all eligible voters who haven't registered for these other two parties or for the libertarians who still have ballot access um, into the independents. But, um, you know, in this question of like, how do how is it that we oppose Trump um, without uh, voting for Joe Biden? Right. Uh, really, we have to start by actually uh, building up. Uh, working class power, so to speak, right? We have to actually start by uh, putting forward real working class alternatives because simply voting for Joe Biden in a state where he needs the support doesn't really, quote unquote, neoliberalism, right? It doesn't really oppose the policies of the Democratic Party. And instead, what it does is it plays into this usual lesser evilism. There's other um, issues at hand in the state of Arizona, of course, you know, there's the issues of immigrants' rights. There's the issue of police brutality. This is one of the bloodiest cities in America for police brutality. Um, uh, there's issues on housing. Uh, there, um, the eviction rate in, in Phoenix, Arizona is horrendous. Um, not quite as bad as in California where you are, Copper, but, you know, there's a uh, tent city just blocks away from the state capitol. So with all that said, right, what we have to do is actually start organizing for power rather than um, picking this lesser of two evils option effectively. Um, and that's uh, that's not going to happen by working within the state Democratic Party, in my opinion, nor will it happen by just conceding to the powers that be. So that actually, um, you know, is, is this great answer, not conceding to the powers that be. And I think to abstract from what you were saying, uh, a core component of this is supporting the Democrats exactly where they're weakest 
uh, is actually supporting the same system that brought in uh, Donald Trump into power. So that's definitely a very important point. Uh, we have another couple of questions that I think are, are actually very good uh, to pick up here. One question is, what's the qualitative uh, and what part? What qualitative and quantitative changes can we expect in the resulting class con Trump presidency uh, versus the Biden presidency? And another person asked, uh, we could see a drop in momentum for class struggle under Biden. And, and I'll I'll throw that back at Tom. Um, Tom, what what sort of changes could we see uh, with let's put aside this sort of contested vote for now. Let's just discuss you know clear victory for one party versus the other. What could we see? Well. First of all, class consciousness has been developing in this country. I think you, you brought it up in the introduction. More people start, uh, are seeing themselves as working class, right? The trade union leaders in the United States, they don't even use the term working class, right? They use the term middle class. But, but things were starting to change, and you could see some of that when Bernie Sanders in 2016 and when he ran again this year, because he started to talk about the working class, and other people talk about the working even even Trump, right? I think, uh, talks about the working class. Maybe Biden now even mentions the working class. So consciousness is changing in that sense. And also politically, we see what is it four in 10 Americans have, have look, look in a positive way to some form of socialism. Um, a third of millennials are open to the idea of communism. So you start seeing those changes as well. But in general, the consciousness of the working class changes through struggle in particular. If we, you know, in the past period, in the past decade or so, a couple of decades, actually, we've seen a low amount of strikes. We've seen now you, that's begun to change a bit. You know, we saw the West Virginia teacher strikes. There were two uh, strikes one year after the other. We saw a number of teacher strikes. We saw the General Motors strike last year. So strikes are starting to pick up again. But the but when when the working class starts to struggle, that's when the class consciousness really really uh, develops, you know. And that and to me, uh, you know, I I don't I I think the consciousness will will be uh, developed as a byproduct of class struggle, regardless of who gets in to power, you know. Um, the the only the only thing we have to watch out with, if, if assuming you know your the point you're making that if the Democrats win the trifecta, so to speak, I believe Biden's going to try to. Uh, build a national unity government, which is going to include these right-wing Republicans who hate Trump. They'll be part of the unity, the regular Democrats. He, he might even take someone like Bernie Sanders, make him as labor secretary. But what is that? What is the role of Sanders in that kind of government? It's to it's to uh, actually keep the working class down, keep, keep them, you know, uh, in a sense of, uh, you know, we'll we'll take care of things, we'll defend you, you don't have to struggle, which is exactly the opposite message we want to give to the working class. The working class can only defend itself through struggle, whether whether it's defending itself against the Proud Boys or these right-wing lunatics, defending itself on the job in terms of its living standard. It's only through the organized working class and its struggle to fight for change. That's how, that's how things get done. It's that's that's the lesson of the Black Lives Matter movement, right? It's people out in the streets struggling. That's what brings about change. So that again, there's another question that's somewhat related. I actually will not throw that back to the panel. I'll just address it because it is a related question. Someone asked, don't we already have corporate fascism with the merger of uh, corporations in the state? So the first uh, answer to the first part of your question is that is not the Marxist uh, understanding of what fascism is. From what the Marxist perspective, it is not the merger of, of corporations and the state, but fascism is a last-ditch attempt to save capitalism uh, from, from socialist revolution. And the, the other part is how do we topple fascism without 
millions of people getting into the streets every day until we get what we need. The, again, the first part is we don't actually have fascism right now. Uh, what we have is standard capitalism. If if this is fascism, comrades, the first question I'll ask of, of all viewers is when has America not been fascist? And what, then the term fascism becomes rather meaningless. This country's history, just like the history of capitalism, is one of enslavement, a genocide, and complete brutality against workers. Um, so this is not anything new. Uh, it, what's, the only thing that was new is, as Tom pointed out, in the post-war boom, there were conditions for class peace, for class compromise, and those conditions no longer exist. So we're seeing same old capitalism. This is not fascism. And in terms of how to over, it's going to be coming near the end of our, our conversation, because we do want to talk not only in the negative sense of let's not vote for Democrats, I think we do need to talk about what socialists can be doing. And we're going to come back to this point. We're going to come back to the point about the uh, the idea of, of using the Democratic ballot as well. Yeah, but there's, there's another interesting question that's come up from one viewer. There's two questions from the same person that have emerged. Um, oh, the question of uniting the left. So uh, it's really, uh, you know, the question is why the left remains so divided into various uh, factions over small differences, often theoretical differences, in comparison to the right that is united in its evil, especially in a developing country like Pakistan, where I come from. Leftist parties have been the victim of false propaganda, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so I'll open this up to all the panelists with one comment that I'll, that I'll start it off with is these theoretical differences are actually fundamental and key. Because if you look at the Social Democrats and if you look at the, the so-called Marxist-Leninists, in other words, Stalinists, they're actually supporting, uh, for the most part, Biden. And that those theoretical differences uh, actually form differences in actual application. But this broader question of left unity is left unity the way workers' movement, Tom? I'll throw that question at you first. Yeah, I would say this. We're all for left unity on a principal basis. Um, I, I wish that there was, um, you know, a united uh, group of, of the left in the United States that was running candidates, for example, independent of the Democrats and Republicans, um, uh, and, and putting out a class program. And uh, if there are some incidental candidates here and there, we would say, let's support them. Let's vote for them. Um, you know, we, we, we would be all for that. Right. But the fact is, is in the United States, uh, the issue of uh, I can't speak for uh, Pakistan right now, but I'll say about the United States, the, the United States, the issue, I think, of left Left unity is the minor thing. The minor thing, the, the main thing is the left is so small here. And how is it going to build? We need to build and reach out to those people who are potentially interested in our, our ideas, like we, you know, like heard of uh, millennials identify with communism. We've got to reach out and, and recruit these people and build the foundation for something in the future. As we get something bigger, we can do more activity. We can run candidates, and, and this will pick on pick up a certain momentum. Um, you, you know, uh, but if you don't have correct ideas, whether you're united or not, you will not go anywhere. I, I'm going to, you know, a lot of the left that's supporting Biden, let me warn them that in 2008, because we were around in 2008, a lot of the left supported Obama, and a lot of the groups that supported Obama, they are gone today. They're absolutely gone. The IMT, as small as it was in 2008, we did not support Obama. We warned about Obama. We warned about the Democrats. And because we've had a consistently correct political view, uh, we've been able to build from, uh, you know, from the very to where to where we are today, and I expect that if we continue correct uh, ideas, we will continue to build. And I think anyone on the left, if they have correct ideas, they can build. If you have incorrect ideas, you're going you're you're not going to build. You're going to create uh, problems for yourself. I think I'd like to jump in as well there um, on the question of the 
this idea that the right is is totally unified and and um, and strong force. Um, not that the the right and the the far right isn't a, a dangerous force, but is it actually united? Is it this this um, are they all kind of rowing together? And and I think you can look at the state, um, the the right, the far right in the U.S. and poke holes in that completely. You have individuals acting, you know, in an individual terroristic way. Uh, they're acting on their own. Um, they're often you tacitly or passively supported by the police, but they're they're they don't. There's no organization behind them. They can barely muster up. A um, hundred people at a, at a capital demonstration, um, and we see them time and time again, massively, massively outnumbered every time they do try to to organize something. And the way to fight them is is absolutely not voting for Joe Biden, who who wants to increase police funding and has told the police to just shoot them in the leg instead. Uh, it's really to to mobilize the the working class. In uh, you know, have the union leadership take the lead in some of these these protests against police brutality. We saw the unions on the street in Minneapolis. Uh, several contingents of union workers, you know, teachers, uh, transportation workers, nurses, you know, people who are who have been on the front line, and uh, they were standing, you know, coming from from all races, uh, standing in in solidarity against police brutality. Uh, in, to fight the system. And, and that really uh, deals a, a much bigger blow to, to the right um, than, than voting for, for any Democrat has. Yeah, and to sort of take away from that, right, it, there is uh, this tremendous irony that in a, in a historic huge movement against police brutality that, com- that you could say represents a major shift in consciousness for people uh, identifying capitalism as the root cause of the violence of the state against black people, against other oppressed people. Uh, despite all that, the, the Democrat Party has run essentially, essentially run a call for vice president. Uh, and, and there's a great irony in that, that, that shows uh, how uh, this class compromise position uh, ultimately leads to um, complete disorientation for the left and for the working class in general, there, there have been several questions that have come in about, uh, you know, the, for instance, the DSA's position on working with the Working Families Party for, for viewers and for the panel that might not be aware with, of the Working Families Party. That's a largely New York-based uh, organization that has a ballot uh, line in uh, New York. But in New York, you can do, you can vote for uh, the same candidate on multiple ballot lines. So they actually just tend to be uh, a, a force that directs people that are looking for a more left-wing alternative into voting fundamentally for Democrats. And and just by doing so, uh, they continue to have access. I think one thing uh, that, that's also asked here is, you know, supporting DSA candidates in local elections. That's That sounds like, you know, if they're running uh, as independent of the Democrats. Nick, what are your thoughts on that as as the vice chair of Phoenix DSA. Yeah, and, um, and I also just want to touch on the the bit with the Working Families Party too, just for a moment, right? Because uh, they have been able to maintain their ballot access, and they've been able to maintain sort of a household name, if you will, to a degree. To a degree, I would say in New York State, 
But um, on the one hand, they'll put forward, you know, uh, left progressives and what we could say are, you know, lower local municipal um, uh, elections and sometimes for um, for senator positions, representative positions and so forth. But then they'll also, you know, have a fusion ballot where they effectively endorse somebody like Andrew Cuomo, who essentially he's a Democrat. There's no doubt about it. He is a Democrat by um, the definition of any uh any section of the left, right? Um, whether you want to say he's a corporate or just a Democrat, right? Out and out. But the um, uh, the question about supporting DSA candidates in what we could say are down ballot elections and local elections, etc., right? Um, that this is an avenue in which we could really be doing more, and we could be looking in strategic positions across the country where there is enough strength and. Uh, certain DSA chapters, um, and this is something that I think that DSA as a whole should really take up uh, at its next convention. And this is something that in our chapter we put forward this question in a resolution called for a genuinely uh, class independent uh, electoral strategy. Um, and there's a somewhat longer title to that, but uh, in essence, we put forward this idea that we have to start this conversation about how can we run local elections in elections that we can effectively control the campaign and we can direct the campaign for to actually use that platform to agitate for socialism, not simply just as uh, left Democrats or left progressives on the Democratic ballot line. And often the fact that a candidate coming from the DSA can be obscured whether or not they're open socialists um, in some of the advertising, right? A billboard ad that simply just says left progressive on it and still have the DSA endorsement in certain chapters. I think that the purpose of running these elections isn't simply to try and win them, right? You can have an electoral victory in some of these cases, and DSA has succeeded in getting quite a few electoral victories, getting people into office. But at what cost, right? To what degree do people actually understand the politics for some of these candidates? That's questionable to me. Um, the degree to which that these candidates are accountable, as we were talking about earlier, to the constituencies within the DSA, right, not constituencies at large, which, of course, representatives should be accountable to a degree, um, right, to who they're representing. Otherwise, they will be voted out of office. But we also have to use these opportunities when we put our blood, sweat and tears in them to actually advance a bold socialist program, because who else is going to do it, right? Who else is going to do it in this country? And, and that uh, that actually clarifies uh, things quite a bit in terms of who else is going to do it. So if you could actually speak a little bit more about what sort of, with that resolution, what sort of actions uh, can concretely be taken uh, to, um, to run people independently of the Democrats, and what results are you hoping for uh, by running people independently of the Democrats? Yeah, no, definitely. And the thing is, is we should always take these measures in proportion with what uh, a particular chapter of the DSA, for instance, can do, what uh, any what any of our forces in the uh, in Socialist Revolution, the U.S. section of the IMT can do um, when we engage in these politics. But the goal effectively is to find uh, places where we can competitively run, we can find uh, whether it's city council positions, school board positions, 
Uh, heck, you could go for a waterboard position in um, the city of Arizona and the city of Phoenix, right? In terms of how water is used, it's a crucial question. We live in a desert. Positions to then talk about the larger politics and talk about um, what the other candidates will and will not ultimately do when they get into office, what they're willing to actually countenance. Are they going to combat you know, police excess and police brutality and so forth? Are they actually going to consider how um, to improve the lives for uh, uh, Latino workers, for Hispanic workers across this country. Um, uh, looking at how we can use these positions to polemicize to, uh, to other people, because there are those out there who don't necessarily know about these ideas. They don't necessarily know about socialism really on a revolutionary basis. And this is an opportunity to connect with them, but not just in a way that they will suddenly be converted to a socialist cause. But there's also plenty of working class people who will understand the basic policies and see that is fit me. Whereas this city councilor or um, or this school board um, and a school board representative who has been against, um, say, the Red for Ed movement in the past, um, how we can actually improve the daily lives if these policies were taken up. But these other candidates are unwilling to do so. The ones that are uh, endorsed or not endorsed by the Democratic and Republican League, right? Because often in these nonpartisan races, they'll have backing, um, they'll have uh, they'll have the official stamp of approval from this or that party very often, whether or not they actually run on a ballot, right? So I'm going to actually ask um, Erica a question. After uh, we talk about uh, this question that's come in, Erica, uh, I'd, I'd like to actually go, get back to the same topic, talking about uh, the different DSA uh, DSA tendencies and this, this idea of trying to build a party on the Democratic ballot. Uh, but first for Erica, there's a question that's come in, and I think this relates really well uh, to a city like Minneapolis, which knows it was the central sort of place where the George Floyd protest kicked off. Uh, but also in terms of indigenous struggle, uh, a lot of people don't know uh, how central that, that question can be on the left in Minneapolis. So the question that's come in is, I think that the intersection of black struggle, uh, uh, pardon me, of, of the black liberation struggle, uniting with the land indigenous nations uh, struggle is a key question for any revolution change here. Can somebody speak to this? Thanks. Uh, so Eric, any thoughts about uh, the connection of uh, the struggle of the oppressed when it uh, comes to socialist revolution. Absolutely. I mean, uh, just speaking about the events in Minneapolis, um, you saw an amazing show of solidarity between uh, different uh, people of different races. Uh, the uh, One of the leaders of the patrols, uh, the organization, organizations that, that led that was uh, the American Indian movement. Uh, and they, they protected uh, all the small businesses along Franklin Avenue. Um, and you saw at all of these protests, the Native American community and indigenous population, as well as, um, you know, and, and Somali. And you had all of these different groups essentially fighting, recognizing that their interests were all the same. And uh, even even some uh, some white protesters uh, would speak and said like you know stop killing black people and and there would be there would be some black youth that would say they're they're killing you too like they're they're killing uh, white homeless people they're killing uh, the, the poor uh, Americans like this is this is a struggle 
against all forms of oppression. Your audio is cutting a little bit, by the way. Um, uh, if you could just repeat that part, to struggle against all forms of oppression, you cut off from there. Yeah, yeah I think um, the people of Minneapolis have learned how connected the struggle against all forms of oppression are to the system and uh, whose interests are, are the same uh, and uh, against uh, whose interests. So. Uh, and again, that that actually clarifies uh, things quite a bit in terms of uh, just to kind of abstract from that. Uh, it's class unity that actually connects the black liberation struggle, the struggle for indigenous nations, the struggle for other oppressed groups uh, that are immigrants and other oppressed groups in this country as well. And of course, I think this this relates really well to the question of what party uh, will look like. So I'll actually give a little bit of an explanation and then ask Tom a question. So there is an argument today. Uh, that we should not be in this argument uh, in, in the largest group uh, on the American left, uh, on the DSA, about the idea of a dirty break. The idea of a dirty break, of course, the same people that are backing that idea are also saying that there should be a vote for Biden because Biden uh, further to the left. In fact, that's one of the questions that's come in as well. And then there's an argument that a, Bi that a Biden administration could make uh, the working class struggle easier um, and or easier to organize than under Trump. Uh, so there's this whole argument, and it basically what it boils down to is the idea that we shouldn't run independent candidates, we shouldn't run candidates as socialists, we should run them as Democrats instead, in the hopes that at some point we'll hit a critical mass uh, that can separate away. So this argument actually isn't new. It, it actually is very similar to the politics uh, that were prevalent within uh, the Labour Party in the 1990s, this effort by a group of people around Tony Mazzocchi. And Tom, I'll just ask you to shed some light into this. Why, what lessons can we draw from the Labour Party having failed? And how does that, and what could DSA do differently uh, today to make sure that it is able to contribute towards the development of a mass socialist party? Yeah, well, that's a great, that's a great question. First of all, one of the big differences between the efforts in the 1990s to try to build a Labour Party and um, the potential that we have uh, ahead of us today is that, number one, the crisis of capitalism is hitting a, 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 a new low compared with the 1990s. Um, you know, the, the post-World War II boom ended in the mid-1970s, but they were able to expand the use of debt and, keep, you know, prop things up so things didn't go down that much but uh, since 2008 since the slump of 2008 and the slump we're in and now it's a different ball game so so the the potential for building a mass workers party in this country is never been better. And, and we see the increased um, uh, interest in socialist ideas and Marxist ideas. This, this, this is a, a big difference from 1990s when you just had in the late 80s the collapse of Stalinism and there was all kinds of ideological offensive by the capitalist class, which uh, increased a lot of political confusion. Some of that has been clarified. People can see in the former Stalinist countries, which have brought back capitalism, how much regression there has been, how, how, how capitalism is not brought about a land of milk and honey. It's brought a, a, about a lot of worse things. Now, one of the problems with the, the Labor Party was an abstract idea. Uh, uh, you know, Tony Mizaki wanted to have, uh, I forget, I think it was 100,000 people join. And then once you have, then we'll have a Congress and then we'll uh, debate program. And it was like this abstract, recruit that many people, dues-paying members, to something that's not doing it. 
anything. The way you build a political uh, organization is through activity, right? You need, and, and this is where I think DSA could have played a role. I think DSA, I, obviously not this day today, this decision should have been taken back in the spring or earlier, but I think DSA could have chose five or 10 working class congressional districts and ran independent candidates. They could start by, for example, asking their people like AOC and, and Tlaib and, and, and anyone, uh, 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 Omar and anyone else they have in Congress, they could ask these people to have run independent of the Democrats, number one. Number two, these candidates should pledge to show that they're real working, potential working class candidates. They should pledge that they're only going to accept the average wage, wage of a worker. I think a congressman makes $174,000 a year, and yet the median family income is 63000 So that would be a big boost. That would boost their credibility, that they're not in in, profit, uh, in politics to make money, right? And then if you run independent uh, candidates, right, it's not a question of whether they're going to win, but what's going to be their main slogan? The, we need a workers' government in this country. Only a workers' government will transform things. Nothing short of workers' government. So to get to a workers' government, we need a workers' party. So if you vote for my candidacy, it's not that I'm going to give you cash and prizes if I'm elected. That's not the issue. If I run, if, if you vote for me, the more votes we get, especially if I win, that's a sign of more independent socialists win. That's a sign that we need to build and we can build a mass socialist workers' party in this country. That And, and of course, the campaign would be based on jobs for everyone, shorter work week with no loss in pay, higher wages, free universal health care, rent not to exceed twenty uh, percent, uh, 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 not to exceed ten percent of person's income, repeal anti-labor laws, and, and unite the working class to fight racism and to fight all forms of bigotry, uh, sexism, and all forms of bigotry in this country. The, these are real things that can be done. Now, now, if if they projected that idea, it's like Nick was saying uh, before. You could. You, it's not that whether you would win or not. It's the question of attracting active members and even uh, people who would support. Maybe not can't be active right now, but could support this effort and building that base. Not only in the districts where they run, but in other districts, because all around the United States, people would look to this and say, "Yeah, we want this. This is what we we want to have real worker candidates." You know, it would speak to the fact that the working class itself organized itself can bring about change. Um, it's only, you know, only the working class organized can these these, these uh, right-wing thugs. Only the working class organized can beat the bosses. That's the kind of message that we would want to get out in these elections. I would also say, just, just to uh, end my answer on this point, um, you know, if you want to look at some example from the past where an ind individual ran in a third party or an independent party as a socialist, and was able to build a foundation, at least for his own campaign. Bernie Sanders is one of them. Bernie Sanders in the 1970s, he ran on a third party as a socialist for four different state offices, uh, you know, Senate, U.S. Senator, governor or whatever. And then he after that, after doing that four times, he ran for mayor of Burlington. He won. And he ran as an independent socialist. He beat the Democrat and the Republican for that race. He ran for Congress. He, I think the first time he lost, but he beat the Democrat, but he lost to the Republican by a close vote. The next time he ran, he won. So you can do this. It, it's there is. It's not the. It's not like it's never been done. This can be done. But we can't look for quick get-rich-quick schemes and and shortcuts because there are none. So on that note, what I'll point out in terms of no shortcuts and no uh, get-rich schemes, uh, the only way that we can start. Uh, fighting back against the capitalist class is for workers to organize and organize politically. Uh, of course, it is important to organize in unions and, and, and beyond that. 
but one of the things that workers can do uh, if they agree with the ideas that uh, the panelists have been putting forward is to join the U.S. section of the International Marxist Tendency. Uh, is a publication uh, for the International Marxist Tendency's U.S. section, and you can join uh, us to socialistrevolution.org and clicking on on the Get Involved uh, section and filling out the form. We can definitely get in touch. We also do have a national event uh, coming up uh, in, in just a little while. We'll, we'll I'll share some more information about that in a moment. But with the the points that uh, Tom just raised about uh, you know uh, the, what the purpose of, of running candidates is, there's a great question uh, that's come in uh, that I'll actually open up to, to every panelist, including myself, to speak upon speak on for a second. Um, the idea is that uh, you know, someone's raising this question again that uh, uh, it is not to support lesser evilism or support Biden, but is the Biden presidency desirable because it can expose the Democrats and we can facilitate the Democrats uh, being exposed. This, from what I can tell, has been getting a lot of traction uh, recently, not only in, uh, in certain organized, uh, self-identified socialist groups, but also just more broadly speaking on the internet. In fact, there's a, a live streamer uh, named Vosh uh, that's been putting forward this idea. And, and uh, for panelists that haven't heard this uh, this particular person, they might be amused to hear that he's using uh, Lenin's left-wing communism as an example of, of why uh, communists should participate in uh, electoral politics and then blurs the line between what Lenin was actually putting forward of saying, support the Labour Party in the UK, um, because he doesn't draw the distinction. And I, I'm, I'm speaking on this first and I'll open it up. He doesn't draw the distinction between the Labour Party and the Democratic Party's class basis. The argument that you can expose a uh, right-wing working uh, class-based party, such as the Labour Party, a bourgeois workers' party, you can expose the Labour Party by calling for it to be elected because you can put forward positive demands on a workers' party. Uh, ultimately, it is, on, on, in its base, a working-class party. And uh, the Democrat Party, on the other hand, is not a working class party. So you can't actually expose it because its base is not organized workers. In fact, unions are just one of several special interest groups within the Democratic Party big tent. Uh, they cohabit that space uh, with a number of NGOs. They cohabit them with a number of business interests. And, and actually, it, it completely treats uh, the, the unions as special interests group. Uh, so this class basis, this class difference between the Democrat Party and the traditional workers' parties that Lenin did call for support for uh, it is actually quite distinct. So by electing Biden, we don't actually expose uh, the capitalist democracy. In fact, uh, we, we shore it up. We give it strength exactly at the point uh, where it's weak. But I'll open this up for any panelist that wants to speak on this question. Uh, and again, just remind comrades that I haven't seen this, there is a popular idea now that uses left wing, Lenin's left-wing communism as a way to support a Biden uh, presidency. Yeah, can I speak to that? I mean, uh, the, the, the fact is, is that if someone is wondering what is a Biden administration going to do, just look at the past, right? You can look at the Democrats from 1977 to 1980 under Jimmy Carter. They had the trifecta, right? They had the White House and both houses of Congress. The, um, um, you know, what did Carter during those years? He started 
adopted all of the Reagan policies, increasing military spending, deregulation of the economy, austerity. Um, or look at the uh, Democrats in 1991-1992 under Clinton, and what did they do? They did the infamous crime bill, of which I think uh, Joe Biden was part of. And then we saw the Democrats in 2009 and 2010. And it's and exactly what Carver said is important. See, nobody, people can learn from experience. That's true. They see Trump in power. Trump has violated all of his promises, right? Remember, he said he was going to get us a cheaper uh, and better health care. That never happened. He didn't even present the plan. He's going to have more miners working. There's less miners working. He's going to get more industrial uh, jobs. The manufacturing as a percentage of GDP is at a 73-year low. You know, it, whenever the Republicans are in, they expose themselves, so to speak. The Democrats, when they're in power, they expose themselves. But the question is, is nobody can draw any conclusions because there's no working class party there that can draw the people forward to draw the class conclusions. There's no independent working. That's the goal of the left. I warned the left, anyone on the left who is endorsing Joe Biden, creating illusions in these people, when people do get burned, when their fingers get burned, what will happen is they won't go to you. Right. And that's and that's what happened to a lot of the left that supported uh, uh, Obama in 2008. So I think I think those are that, that's a big mistake to, you know, to, to go in that direction. We don't we need any more experience. But if Biden gets in, which is likely, that's probably what is going to happen. People will become disillusioned with with that administration. Yeah, I think so that um, uh, said it best. But uh, just to reiterate, like, uh, our, our job, you know, isn't to expose the capitalist parties. The capitalist parties do that themselves, and they, they have the same interests. Uh, but once they have exposed themselves again and again uh, as, as being against working class interests, uh, then, then where, where is the working class supposed to go if there are still only those two parties? Like, what other alternative do they have, and, and when, does it, when does it come into existence? Um, and and I think getting a start is, as Nick outlined, um, starting that and and holding up the banner to to revolutionary ideas, to revolutionary socialist ideas, uh, it needs to start. Um, and that's what we've been doing in in Minneapolis when we intervened in the George Floyd protests. Uh, we held up um, our our banner, our literature, uh, exposing and uh, talking about the the connection between capitalism um and all we had to do was really like hold up uh our flyers our, our papers and and thirst for revolutionary ideas uh there were discussions happening like among the protests on, on how this system is not reformable uh and how we need revolutionary change uh and it's, it's a problem of the system and we said yes and that system is is capitalism and it's there that we must attack um so and and these ideas we found to be overwhelmingly uh popular in the protests themselves. so pick, picking up on two things erica said one the thirst for theory uh, and, and the second uh, of actually fighting back against capitalism i'll pick up on the first part um of course the thirst for theory portion first there's actually a pretty consistent refrain and amongst sections of the left uh, which views the working class as anti-intellectual. Uh, it's largely the middle class, petty bourgeois left, that is always saying that theory is something for them, for these brilliant academics, but workers don't need it. Uh, workers uh, uh, should just fight capitalism on a purely pragmatic basis. That's obviously not the position 
that the interna international market's tendency takes. Uh, in fact, uh, one thing that anyone that's watching this live stream can do is go to marxistbooks.com to check out uh, a fantastic selection of uh, theoretical books that are available. They, sh they ship anywhere, of course, in the U.S. Uh, there's also e-books available. So if you're watching from outside the U.S. and, and want to get your hands on this literature, you can definitely check out those e-books as well. And now that second portion of actually talking about uh, building up uh, a mass socialist party. Uh, one question that, in fact, I'll pose this to Nick and, and if Tom and, and Erica want to chime in as well, that'd be fantastic. Uh, what is a campaign that's actually based on class interest? What does that look like? How is that different from a campaign uh, that's, um, you know, even calling itself socialist, but running essentially within the Democrat machine? Yeah, no. Um, so with a class-based, uh, with a class-based campaign, you know, what we're looking at is looking at what the objective conditions of the working class are today. The objective needs are of the working class today, right? So we can look all around us, particularly as it's exacerbated in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic, how working class people are not getting enough money, they're not getting enough aid, they're not able to pay their rent. We're looking at millions of people possibly being evicted in November. You know, we can see uh, oppression all around us. And what it requires ultimately is to be able to speak directly to the real needs of the working class. and and being able to expose what these bourgeois parties will never do, what they will always be unwilling to do, which in some cases they may pay subtle lip service towards. You know, we can see this in something like Joe Biden's um, uh, Joe Biden's sort of alliance plan with Sanders. I can't remember the exact title for it, but there's a number of different elements from Sanders' platform that um, Biden in some form or another um, kind of hails. But... Uh, in a way that ultimately will not be able to resolve most of these questions, even with something like his environmental plan, right? Which I think there are quite a number of people on the left who maybe are not entirely enthused about and don't fully endorse, at least see it as some sort of step forward. But it doesn't really challenge the pillars of capitalism. And of course it doesn't, right? Because it's coming from the Democratic Party. What is necessary to actually secure a future for this planet, right? What is necessary is a working class solution. What's necessary is to not only uh, take oil and take fossil fuels and outmode them, but to do so on the basis of the working class controlling these things, controlling them from the bottom, from the ground floor, the factories and the refineries and uh, from the pumps, but also for these things to be owned directly by a workers' government, right? Um, because as the old adage goes, you, know, you can't plan what you don't control uh, and you can't control what you don't own. So what's necessary is nationalization of these different pillars of uh, capitalist industry, for instance, with the energy sector. And this is something that, of course, you will never see in a, in a democratic um, party platform. You'll never see it be able to really come into fruition because as soon as you enter those halls of power on the basis of the dollars of the big capitalists, you won't be able to get reelected, right? You will feel those pressures because you rely on big capital to even make it to the rostrum. Whereas for a workers' party, for a workers' government, for candidates starting out before we even have a party, it will be based on the power of the working class itself raising those people up on the basis of uh, 
small contributions from workers, from the time that workers put in to the phone banking, to the door knocking, to all of that. And then in addition, that ultimately these candidates will be accountable to uh, the people who actually are building their campaign and building their platform. Because without that, uh, they can associate themselves uh, more closely with this establishment, with people like Nancy Pelosi and Joseph Biden. So one thing that actually um, came up is, is a very good question uh, from uh, one of the viewers that, that's a little bit of a repeat of a previous question, but I think it bears repeating. It's about how, um, does, uh, I'll just read that directly. It says, how does voting for the less hostile bourgeois party hurt us? Now, before we actually take up that question, uh, which I'll actually ask Eric to speak on, because Eric and I were discussing this before today's live stream uh, about one of the articles that was recently on our website about whether or not this is a less hostile party um, uh, and what what the sort of nature of Joe Biden is. But before going into that, I definitely wanted to speak for just a second about a couple of events that are coming up uh, on November 14th and 15th. And that's a weekend, by the way. So uh, if, if, if you work Monday to Friday, it should be very easy to attend. Uh, and on the 14th and 15th, we'll be talking about uh, a lot of different things from uh, you know what the way forward is for socialist revolution in the U.S. There'll be uh, sessions on the Black Lives Matter movement, the way forward for uh, struggle versus racism uh, in the U.S., uh, as well as climate change, the fight against femicide in Mexico, uh, the perspectives for building a labor movement in the U.S., and lots of uh, lots of fantastic sessions again on the 14th and 15th. So if you haven't registered for these events yet, uh, please do so now, and we look forward to. Uh, seeing you at those events as well. Now, with with that uh, sort of announcement for an event, our events that are coming up out of the way, I'll actually pose that question back to Erica again. Erica, is this a less hostile uh, capitalist party? Yeah, I mean, I think the experience of any less hostile, right? It wasn't uh, Trump that called on the national guard, the the protesters, but the Democratic governor of Minnesota. And it was the, the Democratic Party in Minnesota that implemented curfews that res restricted uh, people's right to protest. And also, uh, I think the, the latest article that, that came out onto the website shows how the Democratic Party uh, opportunistically has co-opted the Me Too movement when it is convenient for them to, when accusations are against Republicans. But Whenever the accusation is against a, a Democrat like Joe Biden, uh, they they shore up and, and defend and to to silence those those accusations and those survivors uh, of sexual assault. Um, and so I, I think we really need to to take a real look at this and say uh, how how is this uh, less harsh than party. Um, it, from a, a, a two candidates that compete for how much police support that they can that they can get, um, two candidates that that neither of which is, are determined to do anything about climate change, um, two candidates that are, that are both accused of of rape. I I'm unable to see uh, much of a difference. And I think that's a perfect analogy for less for evilism as well. In the 2016 cycle, the choices that faced us were a rapist and a rape enabler. And what did lesser evilism get us there? Voting for the lesser evil goddess, which, by the way, the, the 
Hillary won the popular vote, so voting for the lesser evil, what did that get us? That got us a, cont a contest against uh, two parties, both parties running candidates that have allegations, and just for legal purposes, we should make that clear, these are allegations uh, of, of rape and sexual assault, but not only against Trump, which, of course, the capitalist media will focus on, uh, because Trump is their preferred, uh, pardon me, Biden is their preferred candidate. Trump, to, uh, to some degree, is not the preferred candidate of the capitalist class because he's not that sort of traditional manager for capitalism. In fact, it's somewhat of a rogue element. Uh, so, uh, of course, when it comes to Biden, uh, they're circling the wagons and protecting him uh, despite this historic movement. Uh, and again, these are two historic movements we're talking about. The Black Lives Matter movement uh, was historic. And how? what does the Democratic Party do? It runs a, a comp for vice president. The Me Too movement is of historic proportions. It's, it's across the world. And what does the Democratic Party do? It runs someone accused of rape uh, for office. And, and, and read the article uh, uh, to anyone that's viewing. It's titled Terror Read, Lesser Evilism, and Shifting the Blame. Uh, it makes a very compelling case for the fact that the Democratic Party prefers uh, to uh, ask survivors to vote for someone that's accused uh, rather than suffer mild reforms, is what Bernie essentially was offering, mild reforms against the capitalist class. So with, with that, we are... So, uh, running out of time, more or less, uh, we're, we're going to take one final question from the audience. And there's one question that's come in about the uh, about movement for a people's party. Uh, uh, the question is, what are your thoughts on movements for a people's party? Aren't they a workers' party in effect? So, I mean, with that, I'll, I'll comment on that myself a little bit and then open, open it up to the other panelists. Uh, to, to a certain extent, there is something very positive about the, the movement for a people's party. And what's positive about this movement is that it is uh, independent of both the Democrats and the Republicans, recognizes both as uh, essentially uh, you know, alien parties that are not uh, for their own interests. Uh, but if, if we're to really think about this as a workers' party, there's a couple of things missing. One, uh, there is no, uh, no approach towards organizing the unions into uh, a party not basing themselves in the unions, which are the, the sort of most organized aspect of the working class. And secondly, this on, on the subjective side, this people, a, a people's party, is actually extremely vague. Uh, it is not a class-based approach. And if this was a mass party, which would have that term, we could say, okay, it might be a mixed class party that, that we, can, uh, we can talk about understanding with some nuance. But as a small group attempting to build a party, uh, this vague, unclear conception of people is actually very damaging because the last time I checked, you could you could count Jeff Bezos, Mike Zuckerberg, Zuckerberg, you could count Bill Gates, you could count Donald Trump and Joe Biden as people. And, and if this party is reporting to represent the people, we do need to clarify uh, what people we're talking about and, and that there is antagonism am amongst people, that there is class antagonism and there are different relations uh, between people uh, of how things are produced and how they're exploited. Uh, but of course, we should also include in that uh, the Greens, which uh, are, are again, not a working class party, but there's definitely some internal ferment in the Green Party with uh, in this election cycle, at least, uh, with, uh, with several more left-leaning uh, uh, people uh, that, that are trying to essentially change the platform of the Green Party. Uh, I'll actually turn it uh, to Tom first, but then ask for uh, comments from both Nick and Erica. This is some of your thoughts as well in general uh, before we move to wrap up here. So, Tom, what are your thoughts about the movements for People's Party and the Green Party in general? Yeah, um, this is a good question. And I'd say 
this the, this issue of Greens and MPP actually links with one of the prior questions about lesser evilism. One of the problems of lesser evil it it accepts the dialogue at the debate that the bourgeois have have given to, you know to, and and which which doesn't allow any development of class consciousness or political consciousness in this country. What, what the idea when you can run independent socialist candidates or start a, a, even a small party, a small workers party, is that we could start to change the dialogue at least for those people who see us and hear us. For example, where does all the wealth come from? The wealth in this country is created by labor, right? Labor using the resources of the world is what develops all the wealth. And yet, I think if you take the GDP and divide it among the labor force, right, each worker makes some like 140, $150,000, $160,000 a year worth of wealth. And yet they get just a very small percentage of it back because a huge chunk of it goes to rent interest and profits into the pockets of, of, of the capitalist class. So the whole question of creating a political alternative is you want to break out of the of the restrictions that the capitalists have put on the political system. I think the MPP, I think it's made up of a lot of well-meaning people, a lot of good people. We want to work with these people. We want to talk. But 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 that's the key thing is they have to understand that if they want to do something, if they want to create something, a political alternative that can change things, they have to look at things from a class point of view. It, we are exploited as workers. That's how we're exploited. We also have potential power as workers. The working, the, the idea of identifying working class, which is the overwhelming majority of society, is working class and the families of the working class. Overwhelming majority of the United States is working class. So, it's, it's, thanks, Tom. We're just going to ask for people to, to wrap up here with some closing comments. And again, whether this is on the, on the movement for People's Party or just general thoughts, uh, Nick, we'll call on you first before passing it to Erica for her final thoughts. Yeah, I'll just uh, add one final thing as far as the MPP goes. And Tom's right. We, got, we should have a friendly approach with a lot of folks who are in the movement for a People's Party because they see quite clearly that it's a dead end between the Democrats and the Republicans, that there is no way out between either of them because they represent effectively the same fundamental interests. But um, I'll just take one thing from uh, their program, right, which granted their program is going to be reassessed in 2021 uh, from what I understand at their uh, convention, at their national convention. But they put forward the uh, demand for universal basic income, which has certainly become quite popular uh, in the recent period. But they don't make clear where that money is going to come from. They don't make clear who is going to pay for this ultimately. Is this money simply going to be printed and then handed out to not only the working class, but Jeff Bezos and Mark Zuckerberg and so forth? Or is this money going to come from a tax? And then who is going to be taxed on this? Right. And at least from the uh, six or seven point uh, program that I've seen, it doesn't really make clear precisely where it will come from in the end. Right. What we have to make clear is, is that either the working class will pay for this or the capitalists will pay for this. And our solution ultimately is that the capital capitalist class has to pay for uh, these needs in society. And it can't simply just be done on the basis of a progressive tax. It has to be done by putting these things into into the control of the working class, putting it into their hands. And that's why I think it's necessary that we have a clear socialist program and rather than sort of muddying the waters. I can understand that some people aren't um, uh, fans of labels, so to speak, but I think the labels make quite clear who it is we're fighting for and who it is at the end of the day who should be running society. Um, that's and, really well said. Nick, we're going to uh, ask Erica for your final thoughts before I uh, throw in a sentence or two. And then we're going to thank everyone for joining us today and spending 
uh, your evening talking about socialism and lesser evilism. Go ahead, Erica. Right. I think this has been a really excellent discussion, and I was very glad to be able to give my input on uh, the experience of the George Floyd movement uh, as it erupted here in, in Minneapolis first. Uh, and really what I saw on the ground in Minneapolis, the, the workers really coming onto the streets, um, and in some cases even had the actions of the, the Minneapolis transit workers refusing to uh, to to transport officers, police officers, and and uh, arrested protesters, and what you also showed was a complete absence of any sort of leadership movement. Uh, now that it has sort of died down, there's there's none of the there's no political uh, avenue for it to to take to to continue forward. Um, and you really see the potential for such a, a workers' party in that, in that vacuum, uh, that could more firmly build that bridge between the, the unions and the anti-racist uh, movement and movements against uh, all forms of oppression. Um, if you had something that could consciously work on building that, uh, we've seen organically some of that building um, more uh, workers uh, being more active in their unions, uh, speaking out against racism and, and forming uh, coalitions against racism. You know, imagine if you had that in a much more organized way, socialist program. Uh, I, th I think there's enormous potential. Um, I, I think it's really an excellent list, a far cry from a lot of the, the pessimism that you will see uh, elsewhere and, and, and the fear of, of, the, of fascism and, and the right. Um, so uh, I, I other final comments, but, but thank you and, again. And, and that, that's a great, great segue for me to sort of share my final thoughts before uh, we thank everyone for having joined us. Um, is, and the basic idea that I wanted to convey is we're quite often told we have to vote for uh, the Democrat Party every cycle, not only because uh, there is no other option on the ballot, not only because ideas like voting for the Democrats is going to create better conditions for the class struggle, which of course is just not true, uh, but we're, we're often told that the barrier to entry is just too high in this country for socialists to actually uh, be organizing our class on party lines uh, to become not only class in itself, which it has become consciously in the U.S. now since we talk about the term working class, uh, but a class for itself as well that, that takes action on its, in its own interest and starts to recreate society uh, for itself. Um, but if, if we really, really look at history, and I'll just use two examples here, which are uh, somewhat classical examples. If you look at uh, the case of Germany and Russia, for instance, and how mass socialist parties rebuilt, we're told that the electoral laws are too challenging in this country, that the barrier to entry is too high because too many signatures are required. That, it, that the truth is the Democrat and Republican parties aren't parties. Uh, they're, they're entirely uh, sort of political machines for elections. And there's no membership for them. And in fact, they're constitutionally sort of enmeshed with the state. Uh, a, a few years ago, we used to talk about Democrat and Republican judges around the 2000s. We used to talk about it that way. Now we say liberal and conservative, but that's, that was illuminating that th this, these two parties are deeply tied with the state. But the conditions in Germany and Russia were of complete autocracy, the, the sort of largest 
traditional workers' party that was built was built in Germany, uh, and it was the, sec- the largest party in the Second International, which was a mass international, and it was built under the time of the Kaiser, where under Otto von Bismarck, um, you know, the police would break into your house and arrest you for being socialist. But in those conditions, uh, German workers managed to build. Uh, their own independent party and and establish class independence. In the case of Russia as well, um, the the uh, Russian Social Democratic Labour Party. You know, the first sort of Congress, the first meeting was at a railway station with a handful of people. But again, they didn't try to uh, ride the coattails and and and, and sort of uh, uh, follow the liberal movement. Uh, it was in establishing class independence that the organized working class became a factor. In German and and Russian politics, uh, and perhaps closest to us because it's within the uh, English speaking world, would be the example of Britain, where uh, of course there's a parliamentary system there, but that again is secondary because uh, with these autocracies, we can say there was no such system even uh, as <laughs> developed as the U.S. Even in Britain, uh, the Labour Party contended with ideas like, well, if you vote against, if you vote for Labour, you're voting against Liberals, and we definitely want the Liberals not the Tories, but it wasn't until people ran candidates, until these parties ran candidates, that uh, the Labour Party started to peel off the support of the unions away from the Liberals and, and into their own party. And it wasn't until uh, that bold step was taken uh, that a party started to be formed. Of course, we know that just building a mass socialist party isn't the solution. There is no parliamentary road to socialism. Uh, a working a workers' government isn't going to uh, usher in socialism by decree or by parliamentary act, but instead it is the working class struggle itself uh, that is going to, um, to to replace the institutions of capitalist democracy with a workers' democracy. And the only thing that you can do to prepare for that now is to join uh, the forces of Marxism, to join the U.S. section of the IMT. Uh, write to us, reach out if you have questions. And we look forward to continuing this conversation with everyone that's joined. And thank you so much for joining us this evening. Bella,